that it's inch. So today we're going to go over Fall River murders, mysteries, and rumors. So there's no way to explain the effect the Borden murders had on the small town of Fall River in 1892. The newspapers stirred up passions of the residents, but it was not just the numerous stories that appeared in them. This talk on the streets, in the taverns, in the shops, stores, behind closed doors, private homes, all swirled with the latest developments. The police gathered a number of clues. A boy reported seeing a man jump over the back fence of the Borden property, as we talked about in the beginning in the first in the Fall River series. And while there was a man found matching that description, he had a solid alibi. There was also a bloody hatchet found on the Sylvia farm in South Somerset, but the blood on the blade proved to be of a chicken. One of the most perplexing things, I think, for most people is the shadowy figure of Lizzie's uncle, John Vinicic Morse. Now, I've read that John was, some people have written that John was best friends with Andrew Borden. Some people say he was friends with Andrew Borden. Some people say he wasn't friends with Andrew Borden. But all in all, his appearance the night before without a suitcase is very odd. It took a long time to travel the distance in that time period, so there's that. And the best way to describe his behavior after the murders is just it's strange. John's sister, Sarah, married Andrew Borden 47 years earlier, when Borden was still young. And struggling together, they had Emma, Lizzie, and little Alice, who had not survived. John and Andrew started a furniture business together, but they weren't successful. At 25, John had gone out west to seek his fortune and he settled in Hastings Mill, Iowa, where he did very well in the horse trading business. So he eventually comes back to Massachusetts and establishes his home in South Somerset, or no, um, South Yarmouth, near New Bedford, in August of 1892 and he came to spend a few days with the Bordens but again 
it's so strange. He did not have a, a single piece of luggage. Not a comb, not a shirt, or toothbrush. Now, he just settled back in Massachusetts in August of 1892. Andrew Borden was murdered on August 4th, 1892. Three days after Uncle John had come back and set up house in just three days and decides to leave and just show up. It's very weird. He was always welcomed at the Borden home. Andrew was often said to be his closest friend, and he always got advice on business matters from Andrew. Morse arrives unannounced at dinner time on August 3rd. Andrew was happy to see him and ordered another plate to be set for the meal. Morse had eaten and they talked. He later told the police he had then gone out on business. Returning that night at 8.30, there had been more talk until 10 and they all had gone to bed. He was up very early the next morning, and he was go gone by about 9 a.m. And he said that he would be back around noon for lunch. He had been out of town visiting his niece and buying a pair of oxen. The most interesting thing is that he could trace his movements minute by minute and street by street, including the number of the trolley that he had ridden, and the number on the cap of the conductor who had been on board, he had carefully built what was detailed as an unbreakable alibi. Whether or not that was what he was trying to do, it, it's still unknown. Now, when he returns back at noon, he apparently fails to notice that several hundred people are milling about in front of the boarding house. He walks past the side door where Officer Allen's large friend Charles Sawyer had been stationed. He spoke to no one to ask about the excitement. Instead, he just pushed his way through the crowd and met, made his way to the backyard where he absently picked up several pairs and nonchalantly leaned against the corner of the barn. He showed no curiosity as to why Sawyer was guarding the door or why the policemen were running back and forth frantically in and out of the house.
this was her his brother-in-law his sister's husband of 47 years he asks what's happening he says nothing and just stands there to the side that's very interesting so when he's finished with the pears and he'll later testify that it was just one pair but there was another officer that swears he saw him eat three pears so here we go again with the three pears he finally wanders over to the door and identified himself and went in the house. He told a reporter, I opened the sitting room door and found a number of people, including doctors. I entered, but only glanced at the body. No, I did not look closely enough to be able to describe it. Then I went upstairs and took a similar hasty view of the dead woman. I recall very little of what took place. So he's in the house for a total of three minutes and then he left. Was he in shock? Was he so stunned that he simply couldn't register what had taken place? Or do, did he care so little for his closest friend and the dead woman that he simply didn't care? Or worse yet, was John Morris somehow involved in what had occurred? Was he so depraved that he was unmoved by the sight of butchered corpses of his friends? His nieces family. So those questions, like so many others, have never been answered. Now there's Dr. William Dolan, who worked extensively with the police as the county medical examiner. He was quite familiar with the dead bodies and he did not join in the speculation that was going on about how Andrew and Abby had met their deaths. Though the science of forensic medicine was not an advanced one in 1892, Dolan could tell by the dark thick blood of Abby's wounds and the fresh red flow from Andrew's that Abby had been dead for an hour or so before Andrew was killed. So if Andrew had died at 11, that means Abby would have died at 9.30 or 10. It was a crucial revelation for it occurred during a span of time when nothing had been seen or heard. Now this caused Dr. Dolan to remember the mysterious note that Abby was supposed to have received. He asked Lizzie where it might be. It was important, but she had no idea. They had all searched for it in Abby's handbag and her sewing box. Alice, Lizzie's friend, 
suggested that perhaps she had tossed it into the fire. Officer Harrington would testify that he had seen Dr. Bowen in the kitchen reading a small piece of paper. When asked what it was, his reply, his reply had been, Oh, it's just nothing. Something about my daughter going somewhere. He had casual, casually tossed it into the stove. Was it important? Could it even have been the note that Abby allegedly received about a sick friend? Or was it something else? What secrets did Dr. Bowen have to hide? Once again, those questions have all gone, gone unanswered. There was also a number of reports of unknown people around the boarding house on the day of the murder. Some even claimed to hear mysterious sounds on the night of August 3rd. Later, during Lizzie's trial, the first witness for the defense was Martha Shagnon, the daughter of Dr. Shagnon, the Borden's neighbor, diagonally northeast behind them. As she also stated at the preliminary hearing, Martha testifies that at about 11 p.m. on the night before the murders, she and her stepmother were disturbed by the sound of pounding on wood or on a fence. The noise came from the direction of the boarding house and continued for four or five minutes. Her stepmother, Marion, was the second witness and repeated what Martha had said. In cross-examination, the prosecution muddled this testimony, forcing the two women to admit that they did not investigate at the time and that the noise could have come from another source. Oddly, the Fall River Herald on August 8, 1892, reported that Mrs. Shagnon and her daughter Martha say that Wednesday night around 12 o'clock, they distinctly saw a man jump over the fence into the boarding yard and subsequently heard a slight noise in the barn. Which was it? Was the newspaper confused or spicing things up for dramatic purpose? Or had their testimony changed? Or did they actually hear someone pounding on the Borden's back fence? It's possible we will never know, because even though the defense opened with their testimony, they failed to pursue it and never referred to it again. The prosecution spent considerable time neutralizing the testimony, but they too never referred to it again. Most reports came in of strangers seen on the day of the murders. One of the better-known sightings came from Dr. Benjamin Handy, and it was reported in the August 10th Daily Globe. And this is what is quoted. In connection with the great mystery, a report is circulated upon, which more or less importance may be attached. Dr. Handy says that while driving past the Borden house at about 10.30 or 10.40, on the day of the murder, he noticed a man walking slowly by the house. In his profession, the doctor meets and passes many people, 
but he says that his attention is never attracted to a person on the street before, as it was by this man. So much so was he struck by his appearance that he turned about in his carriage to obtain a second look at him. He described him as being a man of about five feet four in height, of medium weight, and wearing a dark mustache. His face was deadly white, but was round and full. The young man was apparently 20 years of age. This description tallies with that of a man whom Officer Hyde saw in the vicinity on the morning of the murder. His description also answers to that of a man who is reported to have jumped on a wood team at Flint Village and asked to be conveyed to Westport. This man had, has had every opportunity to be miles away, but it is quite possible that if the same fellow was found, something interesting would follow. So another person seen around the Borden house on the morning of the murder was reported the next day, August 11th, in the Daily Herald. And here's what's written in quotes. Another woman dropped into the case Wednesday afternoon, but she did not stay long. A lad who drives for Wilkinson's, an ice cream man, said he saw a woman come out of the boarding yard about 10.30 o'clock Thursday. Officer Harrington and Doherty went to work to find this woman, and they succeeded in discovering that Ellen Egan was passing that way Thursday morning when she was seized with a sudden illness. She went into the first yard she came to, but it was Dr. Kelly's yard, which is next to the boarding house, and the boy was mistaken. The lad who worked for the Wilkinsons was a Russian immigrant named Hyman Lubinsky. His initial reports were rejected by both the defense and the police for two reasons. His report of the time of the sightings was not consistent with the crime, and Ellen Egan's innocent presence on the scene was a possible explanation for the woman he did see. The defense worked diligently on the testimony. Later, Lubinsky was promoted to the position of star witness to testify that he had seen Lizzie Borden outside her house at the time Andrew was murdered. Dr. Handy was considered an important witness at the trial and told of the man he saw. Ellen Egan, who was only mentioned by the defense in the summation of the trial, was never actually called to the stand, even though... Her encounter is an important part of the story. She was the woman that the Herald said was seen by, by Harmon Lubinsky, and she did not con contact the police, but since she was so uneasy at giving her story to the authorities, and since the officials got what they needed from Ellen to help build the case they had already developed against Lizzie, she was never even given an opportunity to tell her story. On the morning of the murders, Ellen passed by the Borden's house on her way to Sargent's, where the store was having a sale on dress material. 
On the way, she had noticed Bridget washing the windows of the house. Marveling that she was working outside on such a hot morning, after purchasing a bolt of cloth that would make two dresses. Mr. Sargent had sold it to her for the seven cents a yard, rather than the eight cents it was marked. And she started her walk back at home along 2nd Street. As she started up the street, she realized it was hotter than she remembered. Although too hot to hurry, Ellen did walk a little quicker, for she felt rather sick. As she neared the Borden house, she wondered if the silly maid was still washing the windows in the heat. No, Bridget was not in sight, but Ellen saw a man in the yard, just standing there. She tried to do the ladylike thing and avert her eyes, but she couldn't help staring at him. Something about him just seemed wrong. He was about hallway between the gate and the front stoop, and he was facing in her direction. He turned as if to go back in the direction of the house, and so she could only see his left side and his back. His clothes were coarse and dirty, but he was wearing an overcoat on one of the hottest days of the year. At first, Ellen thought his coat was burlap. Then she realized he had a burlap bag over his shoulder and partially tucked under his arm. The overcoat was a long duster-like covering. She looked at him for a long, uncomfortable moment, and then he met her gaze. Ellen said she felt shocked and scared, and when the man took a step toward her, she literally ran. And as she hurried away, she sensed that something else was wrong. It was his smell. It was an odor like nothing she had ever experienced before. It was not sour, not sweet, not a manure smell or sweat. It was thick and repulsive and impossible to, to describe. Her fright, the heat, the smell, they combined to make her sick. Gasping and sobbing, she sank to the ground. When her wits returned, she was under the shade of an elm tree on the cool, comforting grass. She realized that she had fainted, but didn't know how long she had been there. Suddenly, she remembered what had frightened her, and she looked all around. There was no one there. The man, the man she would refer to as the quote-unquote devil for the rest of her life, was gone. She felt a little foolish then. She had no idea why she had behaved in the way that she did. She looked around again and seeing nothing, she gathered her packages together, looked up and down the street one last time, and went home. With a firm, determined stride, she had a dinner to prepare and ironing to do. She heard the clock at City Hall chime eleven times. I'm very late, she thought. The strange man that she had seen did not completely leave Ellen's mind. She remember, she remained troubled during the week that followed as the newspapers filled with stories about the murders. Murders that must have occurred about the time that she had to pass the house. Who was the strange man that she had seen? With the horrible odor that she was unable to describe. 
unsure of what she had seen and how she could tell the police about a man that she never got a clear look at. Ellen decided that she would tell the police that she had seen Bridget outside as the maid claimed and mentioned that there had been a man in the yard. When the police caught him, as the initial newspaper report said, they would. Ellen would ask to look at him and see if he was the right one. It was a solid plan, but one that she never fell up. It was just not a plan she followed up on. When the arrest warrant was issued for Lizzie, and not for the mysterious man she had seen, Ellen never returned to the police. And whoever the man was, he vanished into history. Or did he? Throughout the day and the next, information poured into the police headquarters from volunteers who genuinely wanted to help and from the inevitable amateur detectives and more morbid attention seekers. The police force, now back from the annual clam bake at Rocky Point, were fully committed to the investigation. On August 5th, the Daily Herald updated its readers on the facts, rumors, and speculations in the case, noting that further investigation into the circumstances of the Borden murder shroud it with an impenetrable mystery. Nothing that has ever occurred in Fall River or the vicinity has created such intense excitement, with nothing more than rumors and theories to build a story from. The newspaper used all of the gossip that was spreading throughout the town to simply ask questions and report the stories that were spreading through the town. Since almost the very moment the crime had been reported, Second Street had been crowded with curious people and all of them were talking. The newspaper managed to fan the flames of speculation and questioned how such a bloody deed could be perpetrated in broad daylight in a house on one of the busiest streets in town. No one had been seen entering the house, inside of it, or fleeing the place with bloodstains on his clothing. It was a perplexing mystery. But the newspaper was determined to list the suspects, or at least the characters in the strange story, because they were the people being talked about in the streets of Fall River. So, Uncle John Morris offers a reward for $5,000 for information leading to the killer, was described in one of the newspapers. Well known in the city where he was born and lived for many years, it made mention of his successful horse business and noted that while nothing definite was known about his affairs of the past week, he told friends that he had brought a train of horses with him from Iowa to sell and that they were being kept in Fairhaven. That's interesting because Emma was in Fairhaven. Did they talk before? Did Emma and Emma's in Fairhaven and Uncle John's new home is in South Yarmouth? When the police spoke with the niece that he had visited on the day of the murder, 
Mrs. Emery. She said that she had several callers during the day and one of them was John Morse. He left her home around 11.30 that morning, at least a half hour after Andrew Borden had been killed. Emma Borden returned home from Fairhaven on Thursday evening, summoned back to town by the news of the murders. The details of the crime had not been told to her, and she was said to have been overcome by the recital of the events. The newspaper article also returned to the question of the mysterious letter that Abby Borden was believed to have received on the morning she was killed. The letter the newspaper reported has since disappeared. The explanation that was given was that after reading it, Abby tore up the note and threw the pieces into the fire. Bits of charred paper were found in the grate, but not enough to give any idea about the nature of the note. But also, if we remember Dr. Bowen, I think it was Dr. Bowen, had read a letter from his daughter and he said he tore it up or did he not tear it up who knows so. so bits of charred paper were found in the grate but not enough to give any idea about the nature of the note or even if it was the note in question at all no one in the house could offer any explanation as to where the note came from, but the writer stresses, since publicity had been given and considerable importance attached to it, it is considered probable that the writer will inform the family of the circumstances and thus remove suspicions. But of course, that revelation would never occur. If there truly had been a letter, its contents were never revealed. The newspaper story also stated causes for the murder are arising so fast at the present time that it is nearly impossible to investigate them. One of the latest stories involved a tenant named Ryan who occupied the upper floor of a house that was owned by Andrew Borden. He was so troublesome that he was asked to move, which resulted in a loud disagreement with Mr. Borden and several people overheard him saying that he would like to see him dead. The police looked into the matter, but nothing came of it. The owners of Griffith Brothers Carpenters on Annalyn Street told a story that seemed important in the days after the murders. They were driving up Pleasant Street at about 11 on Thursday morning when they saw a short, poorly dressed man walking rapidly along the sidewalk. Under his arm, with the handle down, was a large cleaver, unlike anything they had ever seen before. It was large like a tool that was used by fish dealers to lop the heads off the fresh catch, but it had a rusty appearance, like it had been not used for a long time. As the weapon with which the murders were committed had not been found, the carpenter surmised that the man might have been carrying the weapon that had killed the Bordens. The police looked into the sighting, but again, nothing came of it. The final section of the story was the most telling. In regards to what direction the police were going with their investigation, 
They had been following the case with leads from a dozen different directions and began to collect a chain of circumstantial evidence that was beginning to point into a troubling direction. The newspaper reported this, quote, The police have worked in other directions and have discovered things which bring them face to face with embarrassing difficulties. The poisoned milk theory had been investigated and an unsuccessful attempt was found to have been made to purchase a drug at a South Main Street store that may have something to do with a subsequent development in the case. The police are guarding these facts and others of an important, important nature which they possess and a sensation is promised when the time comes to lay all the evidence before the public. The necessity of another search of the premises for the sake of bringing to light the weapon with which the deed was done is being urged. This will furnish an important link in the chain of evidence and until it had been found it was undoubtful whether any definite movement will be made. A physician who took part in the autopsy told a reporter that if the dead body could speak, they would disclose the fact that no mysterious stranger had been around to rob them of life, that the person who committed the foul deed was at that moment not far from the scene and knew just where to lay hands on the weapon. When pressed for explanation of these mysterious words, the doctor declined further to commit himself, saying that strong suspicions were not trustworthy as evidence. And with these words, the first hints were revealed that the investigators in the case were looking for a killer that was far closer to home than any tenant with a grudge or stranger who happened to enter the house with plans to rob the place. These words were the first daring, almost scandalous suggestion that, absent at any other motive, one had to look to one's who benefited from the deaths of Andrew and Abby. This was an obvious pointing of the finger toward Emma and Lizzie. And since Emma had been in Fairhaven at the time of the murders, that left only the sister who had been at home. The note that the police had discovered things that bring them to face to face with embarrassing difficulties was another suggestion that something awkward had been discovered by the inquiry but it was unnamed. Physicians' thoughts on what the corpses might say if they were able to speak that came very close for the first time to accusing Lizzie of murder. So this is what I have for today. But I do think it's interesting how Uncle John comes all the way, halfway across the country. Three days later, he's visiting Andrew, and then he's going to go meet Emma up, meet up with Emma in Fairhaven. Or is he going to meet up with Emma in Fairhaven? It's odd. Everything about this case is so weird. All right, I will see you all again soon.